0: Our text this morning comes from Jonah chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 1 through 3. Jonah chapter 1. Hear now the words of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, would you open my lips that my mouth would declare your praise through the word that you have given Would you open our hearts, as well as our ears, that we might receive, not only with our minds, but with hearts of faith, now the word that you have for us, through your stubborn and disobedient prophet. O God, speak, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How do you respond to the grace and mercy of God? That's the main question that God asks through the story of the prophet Jonah. For many of us, Jonah is that book of the Bible that tells us how to survive in the belly of a whale. But although that big fish plays a big role in the narrative, the big fish is not the big idea of the book. In fact, the whale really only has a cameo appearance in just three verses. That's more than the single verse that the very hungry caterpillar of chapter four gets, but it's less than the shady plant of chapter four, and it's just the same as the famous repenting cows of Nineveh. This supporting cast of flora and fauna forms an important backdrop to the big themes of justice and mercy. And so along the way, we're going to learn lessons about the sovereignty of God over the natural world, about what true repentance involves, and about embracing the task of evangelism, even at cost to ourselves. But all along, we need to be asking how whales and worms and cattle and angry prophets teach us to respond to the grace and mercy of God in the face of sin and wickedness. Jonah himself has to face that question at the smallest level when he considers the mercy of God in giving the world shady plants and then taking them away. And he faces the same question on the biggest level when at the end of the book, God turns back and doesn't destroy the most wicked nation on the earth. So is mercy just for small disobediences Or does mercy have an appropriate place as a response to genocide? Does mercy belong exclusively to God's covenant people? Or is there mercy for everyone? When I receive mercy from God, am I obligated to show mercy to those who sin against me? Can God be a God of justice and a God of mercy, Or do we have to pick sides? How do you respond to the grace and mercy of God? And although the book of Jonah isn't a parable, the story does fulfill the function of the parables. It uses a story as the means for exploring these important questions. And so, Lord willing, over the next several weeks, As we follow Jonah on his voyage, we're going to examine what the story of Jonah shows us about the mercy of God, so that we can learn to share the gracious and merciful heart of God. And ultimately, we're going to follow Jonah all the way to the gospel, since Jonah was one of our Lord's main examples of Jesus' own ministry. And in that sense, we are actually much better equipped than Jonah was to understand the grace and mercy of God. Because we've seen that grace and mercy come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's clearest and most satisfying answer to all of our questions about justice and mercy. Because it is on the cross where Jesus died, as an atoning sacrifice in our place, That mercy triumphs over judgment. And so as strange as it seems from how his story begins, Jonah is going to lead us to the cross. But as we start out on this journey with him, there's a lot of background that we need to know. So let's look again at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came. This is the most common way that God commissions his prophets. The phrase is going to show up nearly 400 times in the Old Testament, and it confirms for us that the book of Jonah belongs with the minor prophets, even though you could make a case for classifying Jonah among the histories with the book of Kings or Chronicles, or even with the wisdom literature, as you compare it to a book like Job. But because it begins with this prophetic call, the book of Jonah belongs with the other prophets. And frequently, when the word of the Lord comes to a prophet, the prophet talks back to God to tell him why he doesn't qualify, why the would-be prophet can't, for some reason or another, carry out the commission he's been given. I'm too young. Uh, I'm no good at talking. Uh, Surely there's someone else who could do it better. You might think of the call of Jeremiah or even the call of Moses as examples of this uh, prophetic backtalk. the the pattern seems to be that God calls, the prophet talks back, God then responds by confirming his word through some sort of miraculous sign, reissuing the commission, and then the now humbled and better instructed and equipped prophet uh, goes off to deliver the message. And because of that prophet pattern, we might expect some pushback from Jonah when this call comes. But what we don't expect is the response that Jonah actually has. But before we get there, who is it that this word of the Lord comes to? The text says, this is Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, this name does give us a connection to the histories that we see in Kings since Jonah uh, appeared earlier in 2 Kings. So listen as I read uh, 2 Kings 14. 23 through 25. In the 15th year of Amaziah the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Libo Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. So this is where we learn that Jonah is not a fictional parable. Jonah was a well-known, well-recognized prophet who ministered in the first half of the 8th century before Christ when Jeroboam II was king of Israel. At this point in time, God's people are divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom of the ten tribes has fallen away from right worship, but Judah, the southern kingdom, has remained faithful to God. At this point, the prophet Isaiah has not yet come on the scene, but the prophets Hosea and Amos are doing their work of speaking for God. And at the moment, Syria, the nation of Syria, is the great threat to Israel. But Assyria, where Nineveh is located, is a rising power and soon-to-be empire. Well, we learn from 2 Kings that Jonah himself is from the town of Gath-Hefer, which is located in Zebulun's territory. And it ends up being about three miles away from where Jesus would grow up in Nazareth. That's our first link between Jonah and Jesus, and maybe gives us one hint as to why Jesus uses Jonah's ministry as the sign of his own ministry. Jonah, in a sense, is the hometown prophet for the region where Jesus grows up. We also learn from 2 Kings that Jonah's prophetic message was that God was going to bless Israel by restoring her borders back to their fullest extent. Back to where they had been under King Solomon. So notice that Israel is being ruled by a wicked king. But God's prophetic message is one of blessing, renewal, and restoration. Israel gets mercy instead of judgment. And that plays a huge role as we seek to understand the book of Jonah. And just a quick comment about the names. Jonah and his father. Jonah means dove, which is both a symbol of peace. You remember the dove uh, that God used to signal his wrath is over after the flood in Noah's day. And a dove also represents sacrifice for God's people. It's one of the animals that would be offered as a sin offering in Leviticus chapter 5. So I want you to think for a minute about what it means that God is going to send as a prophet of judgment to Nineveh, a dove. Well, Amittai, his father, has a name that comes from the Hebrew word for truth or faithfulness. And in context, this starts to get a little bit ironic. God calls for a son of faithfulness to go deliver his message, and he gets Jonah. God tells this disobedient dove to arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. Nineveh is one of the cities founded by Nimrod, the grandson of Noah's wicked son, Ham. The name Nineveh means residence of Nimrod. While it was a major city in what was about to become the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh wasn't yet the capital city, but it does seem to be the city that the people of Israel are most familiar with, probably because it shows up in Genesis chapter 10, in the record of nations and places. And from God's perspective, Nineveh seems to be the center of the wickedness that's emanating from Assyria. And so what God calls Jonah to do is to call out against Nineveh, as the English Standard Version puts it. Other translations say things like condemn or warn, all of which give this negative sense. To the message, A word of judgment, which is usually the content of God's prophetic words. But this one is different. Usually when God speaks against the nations, he's talking to Israel about other nations, warning Israel not to follow their lead because they're falling under God's judgment. Look at this nation around you. Look at that nation, God says. I'm about to destroy them for their wickedness. Don't be like them because they're about to perish. That's the typical message that you'll find from the prophets, and it shows up in uh, the other minor prophets that surround the book of Jonah. But this time, for the first time in the Bible, God sends his prophet outside the borders of Israel. Jonah's message isn't about Nineveh. Jonah's message is to Nineveh. It's for Nineveh. And it's important to see that by sending Jonah outside of Israel to Nineveh, God is claiming authority over Nineveh. Nineveh is responsible to God, to Israel's God. Israel is, of course, God's chosen people. But unlike all other regional gods, gods of the hills or gods of the plains, Yahweh is Lord over all the earth. And he exercises that rule by sending Jonah to deliver a rebuke to Nineveh, this nation that seemingly saw themselves as under no authority, obeying no rule other than their own desires, certainly not assuming or thinking that they're responsible to obey Israel's God. But God says, Nineveh's evil has come up before me. He's using a phrase similar to the one that he has used before sending the flood and before destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. This is not the phrase you want to hear about yourself or your own nation. A certain level of wickedness has been reached that causes God to respond sort of the counterpart to the phrase used in other places like Genesis 15, 16, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, God says in Genesis 15. But here, the message is, time's up. God is aware of all iniquity and all evil, but he waits to respond until a certain point known to him, and Nineveh has reached that point. History records that Assyria is one of the most brutal and bloodthirsty empires on the face of the earth. They were known for beheadings and flayings and dismemberment and all sorts of cruelty to young and old alike. And Assyria's artists would commemorate these acts in their artwork that would then be placed in the royal palaces and at the temples. These were not tragedies of war Tragic necessities uh, that soldiers committed in the heat of battle meant to be hidden away, never spoken of. These were celebrated. Assyria was proud of their violence and evil. If ever a nation needed to be condemned by God and destroyed, it was Assyria. And so God called Jonah to go and speak in his name. Well, God told Jonah to arise and go, and the effect of that almost doubled command is to speed Jonah up. Go now, go immediately. Now is the time for the message, Jonah. And as we get to verse 3, Jonah does arise, but instead of obeying like a faithful prophet or even arguing with God like a normal prophet, Jonah disobeys and heads in the opposite direction. He flees from before the face of the Lord. God had said, go east to Nineveh, which is one of the easternmost points to Israel's known world at the time. And Jonah flees to Tarshish, one of the westernmost points that Israel will have known of. Well, like I said, it's not unusual for God and his prophets to have differences of opinion about the commissions that they've been given. But usually these disagreements are resolved through conversation, and through these signs of confirmation that God gives. But Jonah has chosen the hard way, not the easy way. Disobedience instead of discussion. And so his sign of confirmation is going to be very different than the sign that is given to any other prophet. And our first hints of just how dramatic the sign is going to be start showing up in verse 3 as it describes Jonah's running away from God, not just as going west, but going down. Jonah goes down to Joppa and then goes down into the ship. And as we'll see, Lord willing, in the coming weeks, he has a lot further down that he's going to go. I want to comment on Jonah's efforts to flee away from the presence of the Lord, a phrase that shows up twice there in verse 3. Many people can point out the folly in trying to hide from God. Maybe you're thinking of a passage like Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit, the psalmist asks, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. You can't get away from God. Of course, Jonah knows this. He's not at this moment trying to avoid God's omnipresence. He doesn't believe that he can find a place where God can't see him or take note of what he's doing, but he is running away from God's special presence. If he just wants to disobey God and not carry out this commission, he doesn't have to flee, he doesn't have to go anywhere, he just has to stay put. But Jonah wants to leave God's special presence. This might be talking about the temple or Jerusalem. Uh, Joppa is the port that you would go to if you were trying to leave uh, Jerusalem. We're not sure where Jonah is ministering, uh, but this would seem to make sense. But Jonah wants to go somewhere where God is not active. Even later in Isaiah's day, Tarshish is named as just such a place, a place that hasn't heard of Yahweh's fame or seen his glory. Tarshish is as far from the presence of God as Jonah can imagine. And that's where he starts to go. For us, in imitating the foolish behavior of the prophet, this would look something like, Stopping coming to church. No longer reading your Bible. Giving up on time in prayer. You know you can't hide from God. You know there's not a place you can go where God can't find you. But you do everything that you can so that you don't encounter him. So that you're not reminded of him. So that you're not confronted by his presence. That's what Jonah's doing and it's actually a pretty common response when one of God's people starts to disobey God. We try to get as far away from him as we can relationally. Just like in the Garden of Eden, sin doesn't simply break a law, it ruptures a relationship, and sinners are no longer welcome in God's presence, but they're also no longer at peace in God's presence. And so they, and so we, run away from the presence of the Lord. Well, Jonah's actions in doing this raise a question that our text today doesn't answer. Why? Why, when he receives this call, does Jonah run? What is it about the message that he has for Nineveh that causes Jonah to flee? Well, you can skip to chapter 4 and find the answer. But the author leaves that information out of the beginning of the book. It's not in chapter 1. And maybe it's something we're supposed to think about, something to, to ponder in our own hearts for a while. What is it about this message that would cause an otherwise faithful prophet to run away from the presence of the Lord? Maybe the answers that we come up with will tell us something about our own hearts, and how comfortable we might be with the commission that we have from God. Because don't we have a call like Jonah's? Aren't we supposed to spread the word of the Lord? Of course, Jonah's message was a message of condemnation. Ours is a message of salvation. How much more joyful is our message? How much easier should such a message be to deliver? But are we speaking for God? Or do we find ourselves running the other way? This dynamic that we see clearly in Jonah and that we try to hide when it's popping up in our own heart, it brings us to another key moment when it comes to understanding God's mercy, and this time from God's perspective. We're not asking the question, how do we respond to God's mercy? We're asking, how does God respond? respond to our disobedience and sin. When we run away, how does God respond? What is God going to do about Jonah, this disobedient prophet? Well, Lord willing, we'll see the answer next week. But for now, I want us to use Jonah as a springboard to Jesus. Because Jesus is God's answer to our disobedience and sin. When we run away from God, God does not abandon us or allow us to get away. God comes after us. God pursues us. And this pursuit is God's foundational act of mercy on sinners. Because if God did not come for you when you run away from his presence, you would never come back to God. When the wickedness of the world When our wickedness, our sin, comes up before God, God called his son Jesus and told him to go into our world with a message of salvation. And not just a message. God sent Jesus to come after us and to atone for our sin by shedding his own blood on the cross so that we might be brought back and reconciled to the God we ran away from. Aren't you glad that Jesus is a better prophet than Jonah? At the same time, God is not finished with Jonah. And we'll find out more, Lord willing, in the weeks to come. But for today, the charge is this, and it's simple don't run away from God. When God calls you, don't run away from his presence. You've been given a glorious gospel to take far beyond the borders of the church. A message of salvation through Jesus Christ that overcomes the evil and cruelty in the world around you. You've been entrusted with a message of mercy. So rise up and go speak for God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord God, God of mercy, God who pursues your wayward people, we thank you for this message of mercy, even in the face of rebellion. We pray that as we continue to encounter your mercy and your response to our disobedience through this book, that you would humble us, that you would cause us to stand in awe of your mercy and pursuing love, uh, to embrace it for ourselves and to rise up, the glorious good news of the mercy of God on our lips. We ask for this in Jesus' name, and amen.